You're listening to the Hub City Church Podcast. To learn more about Hub City Church, including our gathering times, you can check out our website at albanyhubcity.com. Well, good morning. Hey. Oh, I'm glad you're front row. Love it. Um, yes, I also would deeply encourage everyone to grab one of those booklets. How many have grabbed a booklet so far? Are those super helpful? Who has... Who is not a note taker who grabbed a booklet? Nice. Is it helpful? Are you a note taker now? Yeah. Oh, neat. There you go. If note taking is like a New Year's resolution for you, this is the time. Um, yeah, it's really good. And again, just it, way more than note taking, way more than anything, just Matthew chapters 5 through 7, just steeped in it, just as a community. I know a lot of you are on Bible reading plans or just like to read random or whatever, but if we could just even daily, even weekly, just be reading those chapters over and over again. It's, it's, it will not disappoint. Um, like we've talked about, this is just a compilation of some of Jesus' just most famous teachings. Again, believe Jesus was probably teaching for a, a while on this hill, um, and this is kind of the, the, the compilation of it. So it's so good. So we're kind of in the second uh, section of it, but you know, in their context of where we're at in the scriptures, in the Gospel of Matthew, everybody in this scenario has been waiting for the Messiah. Okay, everyone has been waiting for the Messiah. The, the issue is not everyone had the same idea of what the Messiah, who he was, or what he was supposed to do, um, or what was going to happen. Um, so for the disciples of Jesus, they're looking at this character of Jesus on this hill, and the deep question in their heart is, are you him? Are you the Messiah? Are you the one that will bring about God's kingdom to earth? And as Jesus is teaching, there's this wondering, wait, okay, so if you are him, and we believe in this, are you teaching us something different? Are you teaching a different way? Is this something different than what we've heard our whole life? Are we adopting a new law where we should forgo all that we've known up to this point and just follow you? And this is how Jesus responds. Verse 17 of chapter 5. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For Jesus, he's saying, don't throw out all that you know. Realize that all of the law, all of the prophets, the stuff that you have built your faith upon were all pointing to me as its fulfillment. I am the fulfillment of all you, you know. So don't throw it out. Realize it in me. And now Jesus is going to walk through what they know and how it was always supposed to change the hearts of God's people even down to the smallest of detail even to the smallest of commandments or areas that don't seem like a very big deal in life is important to God because he is the author of all parts of life. Jesus continues, verse 20, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Here's the issue. 
God absolutely cares about all of life down to the smallest details. But what was happening with the religious leaders, the Pharisees and scribes who had been corrupted in their thinking, have made following God a part of their own self-righteousness, even down to the smallest of details that nobody else could accomplish unless they had their position and prestige. They were setting themselves apart. They took what was meant to be done out of love and made it this list of completions to show, to present themselves as perfect to God and for his approval. But Jesus, he's ushering in this new covenant through his person and his teachings, not accomplishing the law, as Steve talked about a few weeks ago and we've talked about last week. It's not like a checklist, but fulfilling the point of the law. And here was the point of the law. Many of you know this passage. We've talked about a lot at Hub City. But you go back to Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah, and God spoke through him to say what he was going to do, how he was going to fulfill this, the law and the covenant. So this is Jeremiah 31. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. That's an incredible promise, an incredible covenant promise. Man cannot do that. Man cannot give themselves a new heart, right? There's no Amazon supplement for that. <laughs> I've looked. A new law from, they can't give themselves a new law from God. This needs to be given by God himself and taught by God himself. I, I heard this analogy uh, kind of prepping for this, and I think it's pertinent here. Has anyone here ever learned a new language or a musical instrument for the first time? Yeah? Okay, excellent. So what do you start with? Do you start with just ripping it, just going for it, right? Right, you start with like alphabet, vocab, scales, finger placement, like all that stuff, right? All these things are crucial to starting out. And if you talk to someone who's fluent in other languages or fluent in piano, they still go back to scales sometimes, vocab often, but that was all foundational to live in that, so now they can live in that fluently. Does that make sense? That's what the Sermon on the Mount is. This is the foundation, the unshakable foundation for living a whole different kind of life. A life sold out for God with a new heart, new mindset, new outlook on life and self. A life that knows the Lord. And we looked at last week the kinds of people God is looking at and the core values that his kingdom has in the Beatitudes and the salt and the light. And Jesus now, he moves into kind of really actually a tough teaching. It's tough to sit under, as you'll find here. It's tough because it doesn't just deal with how God's people are living externally, this good stuff that they're doing, or the, the, but he's calling out the internal motivations of the heart. Does anyone want the internal motivations of their heart called out today? Is that why we're here? <laughs> Me, yeah, please. Yeah, you can leave now if you want. Why do you think he is calling out the Pharisees so much? 
On the outside, they're doing all the right things. They look like they're following God and seem to be flawless in it, actually making it unattainable for other people, which is its own fault. But Jesus is calling out their real motivations and real hidden thoughts. See, today, this is the core of, of today. We're gonna, it's a fire hose of information. We're going to talk about things that should be broken into like six different sermons, okay? But here's the thing. Jesus is after nothing less than the full renovation of the heart. Okay, I'm going to say it again. Jesus is after nothing less than the full renovation of the heart. And he's, we're going to see today, he's going to teach that to his disciples, and I bet today he's going to teach that to us. So let me pray, prepare our hearts, and let's get into it, okay? Father, I'm so thankful for your word. I'm thankful for this sermon, and I pray for us to have listening ears today. I pray for us to have soft hearts to hear what you have for us today. And, and Lord, I just pray you speak so much louder than any words anyone hears today, that you really speak deep into our heart and our mind and really form us into the people you made us to be. We want to have that renovated heart that can only come from you. Uh, so Lord, we, we submit that to you. We thank you and we pray in your name. Amen. All right, so if you look in your scriptures in, the, in the, this section of Matthew, we're actually going to go all the way through uh, verse 48, which is uh, all kind of the old laws, the laws that the people would have known. Remember, they're not supposed to throw them out. They're supposed to keep them foundationally, but Jesus has the insights on them. Jesus has that kind of, you've heard it said, but I tell you, and then it's always a heart issue here. So we're going to work through these. Again, all these could be their own sermon. There's no way that we could say everything we need to say. So hopefully each one of these is leaving you hungry for more. Let's grab coffee or whatever and talk more about it. But the first one, verse 21, is anger. Let's talk about that. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Okay, what's he referring to? Pop quiz? Okay, murder, good. You shall not murder. What's that from? Ten Commandments. Okay, I, I love it. Wow, you got me, whoever said that. That was awesome. Verse 22, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Whew. Yeah, let's get warm again. <laughs> so right off the bat, Jesus is revealing how serious God takes anger. Listen, no one in Jesus' days would equate being angry with someone and murdering them as the exact same thing, okay? But Jesus is pointing out what is birthed in the heart of someone who has hatred-level anger against another, that phrase, you fool, is kind of a, maybe a funny translation to us, right? But really what the, the word is, is relegating someone to something less than human. You have no more worth. You are, your life is worth less. That's how angry I am. The word used here is more of a guttural contempt of a person. The translation is actually really hard. This kind of hatred, this kind of anger cannot reside inside a follower of Jesus' heart. In fact, Jesus goes so far to say that that kind of anger in our hearts cannot coexist with a heart of worship. Listen to this, verse 23 and 24. So if you are offering your gift at the altar 
and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Notice the language. It's very interesting. Is it, if you're wanting to worship, but you realize you have anger in your heart, stop and go make it right with whoever that is. Is that what he's saying? This is good, and this is true. You, you, we should do that, right? But the teaching here is if you're wanting to worship and you realize someone has anger against you, someone has anger in their heart that you may have wronged someone justly or unjustly, you go and seek reconciliation. In this context here, it's not even about your anger. It's caring so much about the other person's state of anger that you may have a part in. God says, I'm actually going to use you in reconciliation of someone else's anger. Before you even give an offering of worship, if there is anger unresolved, go and resolve that to the best of your ability. Not only to resolve that human tension, but so you can worship and the other person can worship with a full heart of forgiveness. Now, we, uh, we say this on our staff team and our elder team to kind of protect our <laughs> hearts and minds a lot, but I think it applies here. We always say, hey, you're responsible to, not always responsible for someone. So what that means is you're responsible to do whatever you can to, to create reconciliation, but you're not responsible for if someone is going to do that back. Does that make sense? We're not, we're not always, we can't control how people respond to things. But I think Jesus is getting here, he's, du he's doubling down on the intent uh, behind murder, behind the old law. Murder may be on the outside, that's what happens, right? But malicious, all-consuming anger is what's on the inside. And if you go to someone who has that kind of anger, do what you can to be reconciled to that person. You're responsible to that, but not how they react to it. This all-consuming anger, don't be trapped by it. In the ancient world, debtors would be jailed until they could pay the debt. If you hold on to the anger, you're actually imprisoning yourself and or the other person. And Jesus' teaching here and the heart issue of it is to set both free with radical forgiveness. Because if we do not, if we allow it to consume us, Jesus' warning in verse 26, truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Lust. You guys doing okay? All right, good. Verse 27. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Again, Ten Commandments. Verse 28. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Okay, so adultery in much Jewish literature is less about purity and actually more about theft. Okay, it's actually more about stealing by kind of seducing someone who's under a covenantal commitment to break that commitment with a sexual act. If one or more of the involved parties are in a covenantal relationship, i.e. marriage, and they have sexual interactions outside of that covenant, then they have committed adultery, which at its core is the breaking of covenant faithfulness. But Jesus takes this even further. Once again, to, to get at not just an action, but the heart intent behind the action. Look at the line. Everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent. Looks is an interesting word here. The Greek word tense here means an ongoing or purposeful look. 
looking, it might be closer to staring. What's worse is leering, which is just a horrible word in general. I don't know if there's ever an appropriate way to leer at something. <laughs> looking for the intent of feeding an internal self-satisfying desire. We all have the desire at some level to minimize pain and maximize pleasure. It's human, right? We do that. But it's not always good. Jesus here says to continually feed that dark desire to maximize your pleasure, even with just your eyes and then your mind, is what he cares about deeply because this poisons and darkens the heart, not only towards God, but towards his beautiful creation and women and men. Right, you'll start to see only aspects of humans, body parts, desirable figures, faces or hair, whatever, right? This starts to distort for us his beautiful creation and reduce it to whatever reduces it to whatever pleases us instead of what pleased God when he created it. Noticing God's beauty especially in beautiful people as his image bearers certainly cannot be bad otherwise God would not have made it so. I love this quote um, by Martin Luther. He once said, you cannot keep birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from building a nest in your hair. <laughs> right? It's the control we try to have, a narrative we spin for ourselves out of our desires to not be lonely, not be sad, to be known and to know and to, be, and to want and be wanted, right? Those are all very natural. But those desires are dis disordered when we try to create fantasies about that without trust in God's plan for our lives. The reason it turns more into theft is because what God intended for beauty and his glory and what was in his image now gets taken and manipulated and distorted and desired in our image, in someone else's image. So let's say this is convicting, and Jesus' teaching is kind of tearing your heart out for the disciples. They're sitting there. Maybe there's heads in their hands. What are we to do? Verse 29, Jesus goes on. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, okay? For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Now, here's what's important. I've, I've uh, been to things a lot that focus so much on this passage, but I think what the focus here is, Jesus already told us that lust is a heart issue. Let me read verse 28 again. But I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her, where? His heart, right? So here he's talking about eyes and hands and cutting off body parts, but we know this is a heart issue. So again, we could take absolutely forever on this, but the point is radically dealing with sin, just like you radically dealt with anger and someone else's anger is the same thing. Ideally, since this is a heart issue, Jesus' teaching could be, well, just cut out your heart and replace it. But that just doesn't work, right? So right eye and right hand are essentially allegories to what you're putting into your mind and how you're acting that out. It's not literal per se, per se but it's the idea that if you feed your mind dirt, or allow thoughts of recreating something into your own image and then act upon that, then this will only multiply the issue and feed the beast of lust. I've been to uh, many a young man's teaching purity conferences or whatever, and where they teach that gouging the eye or cutting off the hand was relegated down to behavior modification. Just remove these things and everything will go away. Does that work? The problem is that doesn't remove the desire. 
that doesn't remove the temptation, doesn't remove what is natural in the world into humans. What Jesus is going for is not behavior modification, but a complete renovation of the heart and its desires. And complete repentant heart that is full of pure intentions. When the heart is made new, the actions should follow. So for the disciples and for us, if our, our new hearts are turned to God and desire His ways above our own, then we need to take seriously what we're putting into our heads. We need to take seriously the disciplining of our bodies to restrain from acting upon those disordered desires. I love what the Apostle Paul says in Philippians, which is just a good rule of thumb. Philippians 4.8, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. That's the mindset, the heart posture we are to have. Now, the teaching on adultery is continued in the topic of divorce. Remember, adultery is when one or more parties is in a marriage covenant, and that breaks that covenant through relation with another person. And in the Old Testament, this was a gra base grounds for divorce. However, it was not always described. So uh, Deuteronomy 24, this is the, the old law. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. Okay, so this was a permissible thing to do. Again, it's a different time. And then as time went on, that some indecency became solely defined as sexual immorality. Okay? The biblical basis for giving a certificate of divorce was on account of unreconcilable sexual immorality. This broke the covenant commitment. So Jesus brings this up, verse 31, back in Matthew 5. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual morality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Okay, tough teachings here. Who is Jesus calling out here? Is he calling out a divorced woman? Is he doubling down on the Deuteronomy passage about her indecency? The core of this message, Jesus is recalling the sanctity of marriage and the hypocrisy and heinous behavior of husbands to divorce their spouse, to end their covenant relationship because of something other than sexual immorality. The question became debated as time goes on. What constituted indecency? Now, stay with me on this one, but we need to flip ahead a bit on our Bibles to, to Matthew chapter 19. So if you, if you want to follow that, it'll be on the screen to get a better understanding of what Jesus is getting at, because this is, this is a big teaching. In Matthew 19, Jesus is teaching large crowds and healing the sick, and some Pharisees come up to him and try to once again set a trap for him. They're doing this all the time, trying to weasel their way in and trap Jesus in something. So Matthew 19, verse 3. And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by saying, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Now, there were two leading Jewish schools of thought here. First, that first century Jewish culture had a high view of marriage and low view of woman. Okay? Men and women were not equal in status. Women were more akin to property, bought in a marriage ceremony, and kept as a helper. And before you get all up in arms, this was a different time, different culture, so don't get mad at me about it. I didn't write it. 
the two schools of thought on divorce based on Deuteronomy 24 passage we looked at uh, were either divorce was permitted only on sexual immorality or divorce was permitted on literally anything else. <laughs> One commentator I read this week said, a man could divorce his wife if she spoiled his dinner. If she spun, I don't know, is that weaving? Or like actually like did a twirl, I don't know. <laughs> or went with unbound hair, or spoke to men in the streets, if she spoke disrespectfully of his parents in his presence, if she was a brawling woman whose voice could be heard in the next house. Another rabbi took it even further and said that a man could divorce his wife if he found a woman whom he liked better and considered more beautiful. Yeah, right? Gnarly. Jesus is caught between two answers here. Remember, the Pharisees are trying to trap him. If he says, oh, only sexual immorality, then the Pharisees know the common folk will not like him, since this is a great teaching, at least for men, that they could follow to be able to divorce more casually. But if he says a divorce can be based on preference, then he's not taking the law of Moses seriously and will be discredited as a teacher of Torah. So Jesus, being the brilliant man that he is, he answers, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So Jesus finds them. He doesn't go with the popular answers, but he brings it back to the sanctity and the keeping covenant in marriage, not how can I get out of this thing. Jesus goes to the intent God had with marriage and the beauty in that. See, Jesus is concerned with how faithful can we be? How pure could we possibly be? How above reproach could we be? Not how could I justify ending this covenant? In quoting Genesis 1 here, Jesus is bringing out that marriage is not made by man. God made marriage. God brought the two together to be one flesh. The institution of marriage is God's, not man. In fact, man should not forsake their wife, but instead from the beginning, who should man forsake? Remember? Forsake their father and mother and hold fast to their wife. Well, the Pharisees hate that he weaseled his way out of that one. And so they asked point blank, this is Matthew 19, 7, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? They're showing their cards here a bit, right? Asking them to speak directly about Moses giving the law, which they taught so diligently. But again, Jesus came to fulfill the law by interpreting it correctly and living it out. So he answers this, verse 8. He said to them, it was because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. Verse 9, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual morality and marries another commits adultery. Paul writes, we just looked at this in Galatians in our series, Paul writes that the law was added because of transgressions, because of sin-hardened hearts. God demands purity and holiness and covenantal commitment. But there is sin and brokenness in God's world. God has given the law to give mercy and wisdom and how to live righteously in a sin-sick world. And Jesus is fulfilling that law by teaching against what God's law has been turned into to serve man's purposes and agenda. Jesus' teaching on divorce in the Sermon on the Mount is more about the sanctity, beauty, and holiness of marriage than about ways to end it. 
And again, Jesus is bringing this back to being not a marriage or spouse issue, but a heart issue. Again, Jesus is after nothing short than the full renovation of the heart. There's so much more we could say. But related to marriage vows is the oaths, is the next section. The covenant making with words of promise. Jesus is not relating this section to marriage or even courtroom oaths, but more of swearing promises specifically on the authority those promises are sworn upon. So Jesus continues. You guys still with me? I know it's a fire hose of stuff. Verse 33, again, you have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. Okay, this one isn't necessarily from the Ten Commandments, but more of an understanding from many different Old Testament sayings and teachings about oaths. The main idea here that Jesus is going to get at is trustworthiness. Swearing upon something or taking an oath was obviously incredibly serious, especially in the name of the Lord. This goes to the commandment, Exodus 27. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. The main idea here was, is not to use the authority of the Lord's name to do or say something that would not line up with who the Lord is, using the Lord's name falsely. This is really backing up your own authority with something powerful or fear-inducing. So Jesus says this, verse 34, But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is, it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is a city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Everything is made by God and for God. You can't swear upon anything that was made without God because at its core, everything belongs to God. So Jesus is saying, listen, it's safe to not swear at all. You are not the authority upon which you are swearing by, and you cannot just steal it from God. Especially for those religious leaders who thought their merit counted them able to use the authority of God's name to give them the authority they desired to have their own authority, right? When you're swearing an oath upon something, you're saying, I'm exacting property rights to this thing of authority to use now in my name, not based on its authority, but because of the authority it now gives me. You cannot take authority away from God. You cannot twist God's authority to now be your own. This is why Jesus teaches this, verse 37, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Think about it. In theory, a truly good man or woman never needs to swear by anything because their intentions are pure and they are trustworthy. Oaths are sometimes necessary, of course, for like legal reasons, but ultimately this is only because of the potential to break promises or walk away from commitments. The need for oaths actually exposes the brokenness of human commitment. So Jesus' teaching and encouraging is to get back to say what you mean and do what you say and have a heart of pure intentions. Now, what if someone says or does something mean to you? What are you supposed to do back? I'm really glad you asked that. Let's go to the next section. Verse 38, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. 
Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. <clears throat> Have you ever seen one of those movies or read about one of those times where, like, there was an issue of honor, and, you know, another person would kind of walk up to them and take off their glove and, you know, like, slap them in the face, you know? It's not, like, a necessarily a physical attack. Like, they're not really trying to. It's a cultural dishonoring, Right? Being hit on the right cheek is much more of like a backhand situation, a dishonoring situation. Jesus is not saying, like someone comes up to you, slugs you in the face, insult your kids, and now Jesus is telling you to turn your other cheek and go get the rest of your family for this person to yell at. (laughs) What Jesus is describing is a challenge of honor. If someone is reviling you, challenging you for who you are and what you believe in, realize this. They have already done this to Jesus. An illegitimate child, a blasphemer, a madman, a glutton and a drunk, friend of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus has been uh, slapped more than anybody else. These dishonoring attacks and what has Jesus shown? Nothing but love. Jesus is not denying self-defense here. This is not a teaching on, on self, not self-defense, but instead more about denying self-importance over another person, which is crazy because no one was more important than Jesus Christ, and yet here he is teaching his followers to not count their honor greater than another. Like, we know the story. Jesus and how they slapped Jesus' face. They maimed him, they hurt him unjustly. They dishonored him. They crucified him. And do you know the core, the core goal of crucifixion? Not just death, right? It's humiliation, dishonoring, to hang someone up for all to see. Jesus is preparing his disciples for the kinds of hearts that could be fully dishonored by man, but find honor with God in their suffering. Similarly, with the tooth reference, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. This is more about speaking evil against one another. Someone shouts insults and you just want to insult back. It's so natural. But the idea here is to remove the bite from your mouth. It's the dishonor you could feel and all the justice responses that wells up inside us to retort. But Jesus calls for something different, a different kind of response, a response of a person who has had a full renovation of the heart. And Jesus gives us a few examples here, giving your tunic away, going the extra mile, and giving to the needy. Those are all supposed to be a radical change in heart posture, where the old self would say, insist on your own right, love your neighbors and those who love you, and hate your enemies. That sounds right, right? Built a hedge around yourself. The new heart, though, is deny yourself, suffer wrong, and have love for all. The heart posture that Jesus is trying to instill in his followers is that of realizing even though you own things legally, there is still the posture that everything is still the Lord's, not yours. Example, your tunic. Though you own it and wear it, it is not yours, but a gift from the Lord. That's the mindset. If it is taken from you, or in this case, you're being sued for it, do you not trust that the Lord will provide something else? Go ahead, give it all away, showing your trust not in what you have, but in God. 
Similarly, with the walking a mile, there was a Roman custom of military personnel could command any civilian, especially Jews, and this was abused on Jews, to carry their luggage for one Roman mile. Don't quite know how long that is. Could have looked it up. You can look it up. Jesus is saying, though this evokes outrage and puts you down and reviles you and dishonors your importance, be gentle in spirit. And what if you even offered to go another mile out of a free choice of love? Likewise, if someone is truly in need, do not be like a money lender and try to get interest or make sure they pay you back. Be generous without reward. Now, caveat with all of these. I don't believe this is a Jesus recipe to accept abuse. This is not a teaching to just give all your money away, allow bullies to misuse you, and walk around half naked all the time. But Jesus is commissioning his followers to be radically generous and loving, even to those you would consider their enemies. Okay, these are not like comfortable situations. These are people that you want to exact something from, and he's saying, let it go. Everything you have is from the Lord, so you, you can trust in God. Which this leads us to our last section of the day, love your enemies. Verse 43, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So much in there is pretty self-explanatory, right? It's, it's a challenging thing just to look at your life and just say, man, am I getting outside of my comfort zone? Am I, am I just only surrounding myself with like-minded people or whatever, however you want to take that? But that last line is very challenging and I think summarizes it pretty well. Can you imagine sitting there thinking, man, it would be so hard, especially as a disciple of Jesus on this hill, it'd be so hard to give away my tunic. This is all I have. Remember, they left, these disciples left everything they had for Jesus. Or to go an extra mile when I didn't even want to go in the first place, let alone with a Roman soldier, the worst. And now Jesus is saying, yes, go the extra mile, give away your tunic and more, and, and love that person. Oh, and by the way, just be perfect. <laughs> right, the word perfect here, it's, it's translated as brought to completion or fully mature. Right, the quote Jesus is interpreting is from Leviticus 19.2, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Now, I don't know how you feel, but when I actually holy to me is an easier thing to stomach than perfect. When, when I hear perfect, I instantly give up. <laughs> right, perfection would be awesome, but that is not reasonable, and I cannot do that. But holiness, the de definition of that is being set apart for something else. Look at Jesus' example. Even the Gentiles do that. The world does this. The world does this all the time, but what sets you apart is a different heart, a different mindset. Be holy, because it's not about perfection from us, but it's God's holy perfection 
through us, in and through us. What God began in the law and is now fulfilling through Jesus is to remake a people that he will bring into his holiness, his set-apartness. A people that is being set apart, set apart to be an embodiment of his kingdom here on earth. And this is why it's not just about us trying harder or doing anything. This is why we need Paul's encouraging words here in Philippians 1.6. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to perfection, completion, the holiness at the day of Jesus Christ. Guys, I know that was a lot. And again, we could talk about so much stuff. But at the end of the day, the most important thing to, to remember is this. God, through Moses, on Mount Sinai, all those years ago, did not give his people 600 plus laws because he knew and expected them to follow them perfectly and never mess up. The law was given because people are not perfect. The law was a mercy to God's people to show them their sin and to bring to light any deception of self-righteousness. But time has gone on, and especially now in our American culture, the law of God is either not known or by many Christians just not relevant anymore, either because it's scary to the world and we succumb to that, or because of the grace of Jesus on the cross, right? The issue is what Jesus just taught. He just exposed that if you thought you could get away with the letter of the law, don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't swear falsely, etc., but not address the real heart change that needs to happen, then you're not really the salt and the light he said his people are to be, to be remade into that salt and the light. The fact of the matter is this stuff is still impossible, right? That was the point. We might not murder. I hope, I really pray no one in here has murdered. That is, that is a deep prayer of mine. But of course we get mad, right? Of course we get mad. We can do everything possible to protect ourselves from lust, but our world is obsessed with sexuality and sexual desire, and there will be temptation, and you can take this forever. The point was our sin is still being exposed. And church, that is a mercy. Praise God for that. Because although Jesus exposes our sin-sick hearts, he also willingly laid his life down at the cross to save and restore those same hearts. How could there be a greater show of love than Jesus exposing the horrific, darkest, and sinful heart-level desires of a person and then sacrifice his own perfect, holy, sinless life instead? Is there a greater love than that? Our, pray, our prayer today, my prayer today for all of us, myself included, is that we hear and feel the grace and love of Jesus, that godly living matters, but the point was never following the law for the law's sake. The point was to love God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And if that is your heart posture, then the teachings of Jesus today should be fuel to the fire of how we are to live out God's grace in our daily lives. This is how we are to be the, the aroma of the new kingdom in our cities, in our jobs, in our neighborhoods, in our families. Jesus has restored our relationship with him, not because we've earned it through our good works in living out the law, but instead we place our trust in him and receive this gift of righteousness through him, through his grace. 
This is the journey to living out his kingdom here on earth, to being the salt and the light that he talked about earlier. And it's not easy, but it is good. And guys, this is not meant to be alone or to be done alone. As a people of God, we walk out and work out this kingdom living together. So here's our prayer, to be a people pursuing the heart of God, not willing to settle for simple legalism or succumb to cultural pressure to throw out God's law altogether, but instead to seek to know and love the heart of God more and more. If we're in his image, we should reflect him, that we may desire to walk more closely in step with the Holy Spirit, learn what it means to walk out the fulfillment of God's heart in these laws like Jesus shares in his Sermon on the Mount. And I want to end how we began today. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Jeremiah 31 prophecy. He is ushering in a new kingdom. And and church, we have the opportunity to be that new people. So let me read this over us, Jeremiah 31, and then let's go to our, our worship rhythms where we sing and we pray and we give in our tithings and we go to the table and remember Jesus' sacrifice on the cross for us so that he became sin who knew no sin so that we could be here as a righteousness of God. So let me read Jeremiah 31 and let this just wash over your heart. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more.